from NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Navy is looking to practice landing jet fighters in a rural part of North Carolina, but residents there call the idea a threat to the environmental and economic security of their community. And if the Navy needed this, we'd be plowing up our fields and pushing down the trees and getting them ready. But see, that's not the issue. Also, bad air and rising rates of asthma are changing the politics of California's Central Valley. There's the saying, uh, do nothing and say nothing, and therefore get nothing done. Uh, That's been our model thus far. We have allowed the industries here to really dictate to many of the politicians exactly what they should be doing. Also, we visit an oxygen bar in San Francisco. And before you laugh, remember the first time you paid for a bottle of water. Those stories and a new plant from the pages of Harry Potter on Living on Earth, coming up right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Some of the most critical weapons in the U.S. arsenal these days are aircraft carriers, the floating military bases which make it possible to fight wars far from home. But back at home, the U.S. Navy is coming under fire because it is considering constructing a training runway for carrier pilots in a poor rural county in North Carolina. Navy plans to build a so-called outlying landing field, or an OLF, are facing challenges from an array of opponents who include wildlife conservationists and the mayor. Lita Hartman reports. Landing a fighter jet on an aircraft carrier floating at sea in the dark is one of the most challenging military jobs around. Former Navy pilot John Robusto knows he did it for 15 years. For example, Afghanistan, the Hornets, Tomcats were flying five and a half hour, six hour missions, sometimes up to eight hours. They come back to the ship, they're tired, the seas could be rough, Uh, it's at night, and the pilot would usually have to reach down and muster up some extra concentration and make a safe landing. Robusto says that's why practicing takeoffs and landings is so important. And the best place to practice, he says, is at an outlying landing field, or OLF, built away from a military base's main airstrip. At the outlying field, we can turn off the runway lights. So instead of having 8,000 feet of runway lights on, we would just have a small 1,000-foot carrier-lighted box uh, there. So it, it really uh, makes you feel like you're, you're out of the ship. A few years ago, the Navy began looking for a home base for 144 new Super Hornet fighter jets. One option the Navy is considering is to divide the jets between the Oceana Naval Air Base in Virginia Beach and the Marine Corps Air Base in Cherry Point, North Carolina. In addition, the Navy wants to find a site for a new outlying landing field it could use to train pilots on the Super Hornets. One of its top choices for that OLF site is Washington County, North Carolina. That's a farming and timbering community in the northeast corner of the state, halfway between Oceana and Cherry Point. Roper has about uh, 625, 625 people. Mayor Bunny Sanders is driving through her tiny town, smack in the middle of Washington County. Roper has two stores, one policeman, and no traffic lights. People opt to come to a community like this because it's quiet and it's safe and the entire town is their children's playground. 35% of the people in Roper live below the federal poverty line. A majority are African American. But Roper isn't content to stay poor. 
Driving past little well-kept bungalows and single-wides, Sanders points to new construction, including a technology center with high-speed internet connections. Then about three miles out of town, she points to something else, a stand of timber where the Navy may build an OLF. This will kill our community. The downward spiral of our economy, which is already in a downward spiral, will have no chance of lifting out. Sanders says Roper's future depends on attracting retirees and tourists interested in hunting, fishing, and the area's natural beauty. But who would come, she asks, with fighter jets screaming overhead. So, this is a fight for our lives. On the other side of Washington County, crop duster Donald Stotesbury also points to the proposed runway. His home and business lie near it. See those houses over there in those trees? The runway will start right behind those and go back 8,000 feet. How far away is that? Uh, about a half mile. And that's why the Navy would take Stotesbury's property by eminent domain if it decided to build the OLF here. Nearly a 1,000 Washington County residents spoke against the outlying landing field site at public hearings held by the Navy last fall. Others are also speaking out in their own way. Every winter, up to 100,000 tundra swan, Canada geese, snow geese, and ducks spend the winter at the Pocosin National Wildlife Refuge and nearby Pungo Lake. The area is about five miles from the proposed airstrip. Howard Phillips manages the refuge for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. His agency has gone on record opposing the OLF site. The waterfowl, when they're here in the wintertime, they use this area extensively for feeding. They feed on the waste grain that's left in the uh, crop ground after the crops have been harvested. The jet noise would disrupt the bird's migratory pattern, Phillips says. What's more, a 20-pound bird with a six-foot wingspan could strike a plane. The experts that I've heard talk about it tell me that a bird the size of a tundra swan or a, a snow goose, if they're sucked into the engine, could bring the uh, aircraft down. If they hit the canopy, they could cause enough problems that it would bring the aircraft down. The Navy says it can address the problem with radar that can detect an individual bird in flight. It might also require nearby farmers to grow crops that wouldn't attract the birds, an option the farmers say could imperil their livelihood. The Navy hasn't built a new outlying landing field in more than 20 years. Now it seems difficult to find the right place for one. And I mean, if we could have found a location with nobody within 10 miles, we would have put it there. That's Dan Cicchini, the man in charge of putting together the Navy's Super Hornet environmental impact statement. He says coming up with potential OLF sites was harder than he'd thought. I tell you, when you do the analysis and you put the constraints on a map, things like tall towers, uh, wetland complexes, uh, population centers, uh, we were very limited in the options that we had. Cicchini says a new outlying landing field would mitigate noise concerns for everyone who lives around existing bases in the southeast. But it's the people near the Oceana Naval Air Base in Virginia Beach who are the most upset. Upwards of 150,000 people live within three miles of the OLF site there. Several families have filed suit in federal court asking the government to compensate them for the negative effects of the noise. And the Navy has noticed their complaints. In October 2000, the commander of the U.S. Atlantic Fleet, Admiral Robert Natter, wrote, It is precisely because of community concerns over jet noise that we are carefully exploring the establishment of an additional outlying field. Back in North Carolina, that makes Washington County Manager Chris Coudray and Commissioner Billy Corey bristle. 
it's not about national defense. It's about providing relief to a powerful, rich community. And if the Navy needed this, we'd be plowing up our fields and pushing down the trees and getting them ready. But see, that's not the issue. Corey says if the OLF is sighted anywhere in North Carolina, it should be in Craven County, 90 miles south, home of the Cherry Point Marine Air Corps base. Corey says that would be fair because Craven County would also get the added income that comes from receiving new jets and the pilots and families that come with them. But that's not what's being offered to Washington County. Now, if they were saying, Washington County, we want to put this field down there and we're going to also station these jets down there and we're going to build a base down there, then it'd be a different story. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, hey, we want to put all this money everywhere else. And the only thing we want to bring you is the pollution and the noise. Craven County is, in fact, the Navy's other top pick for an outlying landing field. But that site contains a lot of wetlands, which means the Army Corps of Engineers would have to approve any Navy plan to build there. Meanwhile, just the idea of the OLF has already started to affect Washington County's economy. Last summer, realtor Mike Swearingen lost a sale to a retired Navy veteran, a sale that was to be financed by a bank in Virginia Beach, close to the Oceana Naval Air Base. And right at two weeks before the closings, an appraiser happened to mention the possibility or the threat of this outlying landing field in northeastern North Carolina. And as soon as, they, as soon as that lender saw that, they promptly denied the mortgage loan based on the OLF threat. And as soon as I spoke with the Navy veteran and he heard the term OLF, he refused to go to any other lender to even try to come down here. If the Navy does choose Washington County for an OLF site, Commissioner Billy Corey says he'll take his case to the public. They're going to hear about it and they're going to say, well, gee, that goes uh the president, for example, trying to uh, pull this rinky-dink mess over them poor people down there, and I'm not going to let that happen. That's how we plan on winning this battle. The Navy's final environmental impact statement is due out shortly. After a 30-day period of review that will not include public comments, the Navy will announce its decision on where the Super Hornets will go and where an outlying landing field might be built. For Living on Earth, I'm Lita Hartman in Roper, North Carolina. Each year, industries have to report how much and how many poisonous chemicals they release into the environment. The Environmental Protection Agency collects the data in what's called the Toxics Release Inventory Report. And this year, there is some encouraging news. But as Living on Earth's Jennifer Chu explains, there's also some questions about the integrity of future reports. Overall, toxic releases declined by 15% from the year 2000 to 2001, the most recent reporting year. The EPA requires power generators, manufacturers, and petrochemical plants, among others, to report pollution data on 650 toxins. In this latest report, one of those pollutants was subject to a change in reporting. In past years, companies were only required to report lead releases over 10,000 pounds. However, beginning in 2001, releases as small as 100 pounds now have to be reported. As a result, lead releases from coal-fired power plants, steel smelting, and chemical manufacturing rose by 17% from the previous year. Jeremiah Bauman is a researcher with the U.S. Public Interest Group. He says because of the new regulation, there's been a shuffle in lead hotspots. For example, New Jersey, which in the last report was ranked number 26 in the country for the amount of lead released, now becomes ranked fifth because of the chemical manufacturers who weren't previously reporting. 
In this latest report, the mining industry was responsible for nearly half of the pollution, but that's quite likely to change in the future. That's because that industry recently won a court battle that exempts a major mining process from future toxic inventory reporting. As part of any mining operation, material is dug up and pushed aside to get to the ore underneath. Carol Ralston is a spokesperson for the National Mining Association. She admits this rock and soil can contain pollutants such as lead, mercury, and arsenic. But if your house was next door to it and you dug in your backyard, you'd find the same things, and you generally find it in about the same concentrations. It's just that we have to move a lot of rock and soil, so so our reports do tend to be very high and make up a significant portion of of what is reported under TRI. Tom Nayton is research director for the National Environmental Trust. He says that just because this material isn't processed or manufactured doesn't mean that it can't pollute. He estimates that under the new reporting exemption, the mining industry's pollution inventory will plummet by as much as 60 percent. And so, in future years, we may well see a huge decrease, paper decrease, in emissions from the mining industry. It doesn't mean that they're not generating as much waste in waste rock. It doesn't mean that those chemicals can't leach off the facility and potentially harm people or the environment. It just means that we won't know about it. For anyone who wants to identify who releases what toxins in their community, the EPA has made the information available on their website at epa.gov/tri. The database is searchable by zip code. For Living on Earth, I'm Jennifer Chu. Just ahead, the jaguar may be making a comeback in the American Southwest. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On July 6, 1946, a French stripper clad in 129 square inches of cotton newsprint flaunted Louis Rayard's immodest proposal to the fashion world. He called it the bikini, after the bikini atoll, the South Pacific island where nuclear weapons were tested five days before his skimpy couture exploded onto the catwalk. The evolution of the bikini began during the Second World War. Fabric rationing revolutionized swimwear, and women started wearing a patriotic two-piece to the pool. Rayard routed earlier styles by making his bikini well teeny. A bikini wasn't a bikini, he said, unless you could squeeze the whole thing through a wedding ring. Thanks to Annette Funicello back then, and the swimsuit issues of Sports Illustrated today, it seems you can't have a beach without a bikini. But as the first half of the bikini century came to a close, scientists issued warnings about sunburn, wrinkles, and cancer caused by UV rays, and people were advised to supplement scant beachwear with sunscreen. And more recent studies suggest that even the strongest SPF factor may not be enough. While sunscreens can prevent sunburn, some scientists doubt their ability to protect us from the longer waves of UV light that cause the most lethal skin cancers. The bikini maven and movie star Esther Williams once said, "A bikini is a thoughtless act," and I'd have to agree. If you have to think when you see someone wearing a bikini, you've missed the whole point. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac.
When you think of a jaguar in the wild, you may imagine a big yellow cat with black spots roaming the jungles of Latin America. But many zoologists believe the jaguar's range used to extend into the southwestern United States. Though they no longer inhabit the U.S., jaguars from Mexico sometimes cross the border into southern Arizona, where on rare occasion a human will spot one. These sightings are sparking new research and efforts to conserve jaguars in Mexico. They've also led to federal lawsuits and a debate over whether jaguars could or should be reintroduced into the U.S. From Tucson, Barbara Ferry reports. It's easy to see a jaguar in Arizona. You just go down to the dealership here in Tucson. The XK8 is by far one of the most gorgeous、um, vehicles on the road. If you want to take one home, bring about forty thousand dollars. But if you want to see a real jaguar, a sleek, beautiful predator whose name means the cat that kills with one leap, the largest cat in the Western Hemisphere, an animal feared and revered by Olmecs, the Maya, and the Aztecs. If you want to see that kind of jaguar in Arizona, well, then you've got to be patient. All right, we're at、uh, Jaguar Camera Site Number Ten.、Uh, it's located in a rugged mountain range, southeast Arizona. Jack Childs is a patient man. Well, everything looks in order here. All right, let's got the film rewound. Now we'll open it up, pull the old film out. Put in the new. Childs has been trying to capture jaguars on film for the past seven years. Given how elusive and rare the cats are, it's a full-time and some say impossible job. Childs hunts mountain lions for a hobby and has tramped these rugged ranges all his life. Using his knowledge of the land and of large cats, he has set up an elaborate system of automatic cameras in the mountains south of Tucson. To attract the felines, Childs rubs his special potion. A foul-smelling substance containing skunk urine on a rock about ten feet in front of the camera. Hopefully, any predators that come by will smell this and come over and investigate it, therefore posing for the camera. <clears throat> Childs is a researcher for the Jaguar Conservation Team, an organization set up by Arizona's Game and Fish Department to study cross-border jaguars. But he fell into jaguar research by accident. In August 1996, Childs, his wife Anna, and a group of hunters were out exercising their hounds in the Babalcaviri Mountains south of Tucson. There, they had an encounter that would change Childs' life. Pretty soon, the dogs got way up high on the slope of a big, bluffy, steep, brushy mountain, and we heard them jump this animal and bring it to bay. Childs recently told his story to a captivated audience of ranchers and other locals in a one-room schoolhouse in the tiny village of Arivaca, close to where the encounter happened. Well, Matt and this other boy were nice and young, and my wife and I decided, well, we've seen mountain lions before. We're going to sit here on the mules, and you guys climb that mountain and take some pictures and bring the dogs back. So, but as time passed, Childs' curiosity got the best of him. And he went to investigate. So about halfway up the mountain, I meet this young fella coming back down, and he says, "Matt sent me down to get you." I said, "What's up?" He said, "Well, we got a jaguar." I said, "My goodness!" <laughs> Childs ran up the mountain and spent the next half hour looking at the jaguar. He was intrigued and moved by the experience. He retired from his job as a land surveyor and began to spend more and more time in the mountains trying to find another jaguar. 
Despite predictions that the scheme would fail, in December of 2001, one of Child's 15 automatic cameras snapped a photo of a young male jaguar. It was the 60th documented sighting of a jaguar in the United States in the last 100 years. The jaguar's photo appeared on the nightly news, and the feline became a sort of wildlife celebrity in the Southwest. Arizona could be home to another big cat. There's new evidence of jaguars. Well, it's official. Southern Arizona has at least one jaguar. This is a picture of a jaguar in a remote location somewhere south of Tucson. Soon, the state game and fish department was flooded with calls of none-too-credible sightings. Excitable Arizonans were apparently mistaking everything from coyotes to Labrador retrievers for jaguars. When something like that's looking at you, a big old cat like that, it's surprising how fast you can back up. In a ranch house about 100 miles east of Tucson, Warner Glenn folds his tall, thin cowboy's frame into an armchair and talks about the memorable spring day in 1996 when he ran into a jaguar. Glenn was leading a lion hunt in the Peloncillo Mountains near his ranch. He thought he was on the trail of a large tom lion, but when his dogs cornered the cat, he got the shock of his life. The animal made such a surprising sound, it confused Glenn for a moment. It was a deep-chested roar. It wasn't a growl like a mountain lion growls. It wasn't a roar like that. It was more like a like that type of a sound right there. And that's why I was a little confused in what that was. Glenn quickly moved closer to pull his hounds away from the jaguar. At that moment, the jaguar locked eyes with Glenn and prepared to charge. And when he started to come, he jumped up on a ledge there, and the next jump, he would have darn sure been right in the middle of me if I just, but I was already starting to run backward. Glenn got away from the jaguar. The cat also retreated. At the end of the confrontation, Glenn had a hound with a broken leg and 17 photos on his tiny point-and-shoot camera. To his and his wife Wendy's surprise, the photos came out. At that point, Wendy Glenn realized they had to make a big decision. We had to make the decision whether we would go public or not. Overshadowing that decision was the history of distrust between ranchers and the federal government. Much of the Glenn's ranch, like most ranches in the West, is made up of leased federal land. Many ranchers fear that if the government declares that land critical habitat for endangered species, then cattle grazing would be banned. Wendy Glenn. There were a couple of ranchers that said it, that he should have killed the jaguar and, and just said nothing, but um, his answer back was, for what reason? He said it was the most beautiful animal he ever saw, and why kill it? One result of the Glenn's decision to go public was that an environmental advocacy group, the Center for Biological Diversity, sued the Fish and Wildlife Service to have the jaguar listed as an endangered species. The service put the jaguar on the list in 1997, and that started the political debate of what, if anything, to do about the wandering jaguars. The ranchers in, in southern Arizona are, are famous for declaring that the sky is falling down on, on virtually a monthly basis. Kieran Suckling is director of the Center for Biological Diversity, the group that sued to get the jaguar listed. He believes that ranchers' concerns about losing grazing privileges are exaggerated. To date, no critical habitat designation in Arizona has resulted in cattle being removed from federal land, though Suckling says that's a failure of the system. There are many millions of acres of federal land in Arizona and New Mexico that should be managed for endangered species such as jaguars. 
Okay, and this is federal land owned by the American people. Um, it's not too much to say that that land should be managed in the interest of all Americans, not six or seven ranchers who hold uh, leases on that land. At the crux of the political debate over jaguars in the United States is a biological question. Most everyone agrees that the visitors are coming from a remote area in the Mexican Sierras, about 130 miles south of the border. But they disagree about whether any territory within the United States was ever true habitat for jaguars. David Brown is a wildlife biology professor at Arizona State University and author of a book on jaguars. It's always been a peripheral animal. The actual occurrence of this animal as a breeding population in Arizona or New Mexico is very much in doubt. I mean, it's not uh, definite one way or the other. Brown insists all the fuss and hullabaloo over wandering jaguars is politics and nothing more. Since he believes the U.S. is marginal habitat for them, he says jaguars are unlikely to set up full-time residency in this country, no matter what anyone tries to do to protect them. But Kieran Suckling argues that if jaguars had not been shot, trapped, and poisoned in the United States, they would be thriving here. He points out that in the 1800s, jaguars were seen as far north as Los Angeles and Colorado. In those days, and even until recently, a jaguar encountered by a human usually ended up as a trophy on a wall. It doesn't breed here now, that's correct, but the only reason it doesn't breed here now is because the livestock industry gunned down every jaguar they could find and drive it out of the state. So I, I think it would be a, a grave error to say it doesn't breed here now, therefore it shouldn't be endangered, when the only reason it doesn't breed here is because we killed it. Now that jaguars are legally protected, Suckling envisions a day when they colonize the United States, either on their own or by an active reintroduction program. At this point, reintroducing the jaguar isn't on any government agency's agenda. Tucson writer Chuck Bowden, author of Books on the Natural Environment of Arizona, says that although jaguars are not of biological importance in the U.S., we should be working to restore them here. So basically to bring them back is like bringing back the wolf in the southwest, of which there were at most probably 2,000 before settlement, it's a gesture toward restoring a kind of wild world that makes humans feel better. It is not a case of ecological management to make an ecosystem healthier. While Arizonans argue over what should be done for jaguars in the United States, just about everyone seems to agree on one thing. Support is needed to protect jaguars in their home base in Mexico, where they are often still killed by ranchers seeking to protect their cattle. Both ranching and environmental advocacy groups support a research project led by Mexican scientists trying to determine whether the Sonoran jaguar population is stable or in decline. The researchers are also seeking money to buy out cattle ranchers in the area in order to create a jaguar preserve. Biologist Carlos Lopez of the University of Querétaro in Mexico leads the project. The reason we're, we're trying to maintain this population in Mexico and try to uh, get all the support that we can from the U.S. is because if people want to see the sporadic jaguar crossing the border, they have to maintain this population. They have to help us conserve it in Mexico because otherwise these sightings are just not going to be a thing of the history, a thing of the past. Though the border between the United States and Mexico may be meaningless to a wandering jaguar, by crossing it and getting captured on film, these rare cats may have done something to help save their own species. For Living on Earth, I'm Barbara Ferry in Tucson, Arizona.
and you're listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR President's Council. And Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio. On a farm, animal housing can be as important as human shelter. And worrying about these comforts for creatures is what keeps farmer and Living on Earth commentator Verlin Klinkenborg up late some nights. When I first moved to the country more than a dozen years ago, a realtor showed me a grand old farmhouse with an attached barn. The realtor was dreaming to think that I could afford it. But in the way of two expensive dreams, the memory of that place has stuck with me, especially the thought of walking through what looked like a closet door off the kitchen and being swallowed by the cavernous maw of a beautiful, well-worn dairy barn. The reason I still think about that place is for the simple pleasure of having the animals so close, so collectively, so cooperatively housed. As time passes here, I notice that we're accumulating a lot of small animal shelters, most of which I've built myself. It begins to look like musical chairs. Until the new pigs come next month, the ducks and geese, which are only a few weeks old, are borrowing the pig house. The old and new chicken houses are vacant now, so the winter chicken yard can get some rest. The birds are out on pasture, which they share with the horses. The first thing I built when we got chickens was a chicken tractor, a small cage designed to be moved daily to fresh grass. I read the books and built what they told me to. It was way too heavy and somehow not very chicken-like. I took it apart the other day and rebuilt it according to my knowledge of chickens, not books. It comes as a surprise to realize that I can now predict what chickens want in the way of housing, but it's true as far as it goes. I show them just what's in their price range, nothing more. How far down this road I've gone became plain when I realized with satisfaction that I'd built the new chicken tractor entirely out of scrap. The chickens seem proud of it, too. Domestic animals are the ones we build houses for. Wild animals make their own arrangements, consulting only their own needs. The point was brought home to me recently. I'd been waking up in the middle of the night wondering just how to refashion that chicken tractor. I'd worked up a dozen different versions in my head. One morning last week, my wife and I walked around the garden just to see what had grown in the night. We stopped to admire a Korean fur she had got me for my birthday last year. Together, Lindy and I looked down into the boughs, and there, in a fork near the trunk, was a bird's nest with four tiny azure eggs inside a demitasse of horsehair, grass, and lichen, perfectly wrought, and all from scrap. Verlin Klinkenborg writes about the rural life for the New York Times. Coming up, a cheap fix to make dirty water fit to drink. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber. J.K. Rowling's best-selling Harry Potter books have won the affection of millions around the world. Now the author's influence is extending into the realm of science. 
researchers at Rutgers University have taken a term from Harry Potter to help name a newly discovered plant. Two researchers from Rutgers traveled to southern Ecuador searching for unknown plants. Specifically, the scientists were looking for gentians, a type of flowering plant that grows on all continents and is used in herbal remedies. The two researchers drove through the mountains, carefully examining the lush vegetation. Suddenly, they saw a patch of strange plants that resembled a particular genus of gentians called Macrocarpea, but there were no flowers and they needed to find a blooming plant to confirm the discovery. Then, just before darkness fell, they saw a flowering gentian. It stood as tall as a small tree, about 12 to 15 feet high, and it had yellowish-white, bell-shaped flowers, perfect for nighttime pollination by bats and moths. In Harry Potter, when wizards magically come and go, Rowling says they apparate, and since the scientists thought the plant had suddenly apparated in front of them out of nowhere, they named it Macrocarpea apparata. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, a hit of fresh air at the Oxygen Bar. But first, more than 5 million people die each year because they lack access to clean water. Simply cleaning up existing drinking water supplies could prevent most of these diseases, but that can often be an expensive undertaking. Now the company Procter & Gamble has created a water treatment system that can purify dirty water to U.S. standards and do it cheaply. Science News Editor Janet Roloff wrote about this new technique in a recent issue of the magazine. She joins me now. Janet, how does this water treatment work, and, and how is it different from what's currently available? Well, in the past, especially in developing countries where these diarrheal diseases are killers, people have thrown chlorine in the water to disinfect it. But a lot of the gunk that's in the water that discolors it, gives it nasty smells and flavors, this includes dirt and stuff like that, it can bind the chlorine and basically deactivate it so it doesn't do the kind of disinfection job you really would like. This new process basically takes all that nasty, smelly gunk out of the water, if there was any, and makes it into a sediment that drops to the bottom of your jug or bottle, whatever. And then you come out with clear water, and this clear water can then be effectively disinfected by some residual chlorine. And this is all done by taking a little packet of chemicals. This is a packet about the size of those ketchup containers you get at the drive through hamburger joint. And you just pour it into the water, stir it for five minutes, let the gunk settle to the bottom, pour that water now through some fabric to collect the sediment, and let the water sit for another 20 minutes. What exactly can this uh, treatment get out of water to purify it? Well, first of all, it disinfects the water. And when tests were made where they threw a bunch of germs into the water and then ran this batch of chemicals on it, it would remove like all but a hundred millionth of the bacteria that were present or a ten thousandth of the viruses. It also removed all but a thousandth of the parasites. And they tested typical like parasites you might encounter even in the United States, Cryptosporidium and Giardia. But more surprising, I guess, is that it was also useful at removing metals like lead, some kinds of organic compounds like DDT and presumably other pesticides as well, and it took out more than 99% of the arsenic, which is a big problem in certain parts of the world, including parts of the western United States and Bangladesh. So you've got a, a packet that you put in Uh, How much water? What does that cost? They tried to bring the cost down to something that many people in the developing world would be able to afford. And so they did some pilot tests in Guatemala and 
asked what kinds of things would you be willing to pay for every day. And people there pay 10 cents for an egg every day, and so they tried to peg it for that dime a pack price. That will clean 10 liters of water, so we're talking a penny a liter. What about the long-term use of the, the chemical to disinfect? What, what evidence is there that it could perhaps have any harmful effects? Well, I think we're the example of whether it would have a harmful effect because basically they're using the same kinds of compounds in very small quantities that are used to disinfect U.S. water supplies. Now, you're uh, a science journalist, and uh, you see companies come and go with all kinds of amazing claims. How do you feel about this one? Well, you know, I was really dubious. It sounded like another new product, and we at Science News don't cover new products. Interestingly, when we talked to the Centers for Disease Control, which has a big outreach program for cleaning up drinking water throughout the world, um, and asked them about this, they'd run some tests, and they said there is literally nothing else like this. That sort of got our attention. Janet Roloff is Senior Editor of Science News. Thanks for taking this time. Thank you, Steve. We turn now to Greg Allgood, Associate Director of Procter & Gamble's Health Sciences Institute. Hello, sir. Hi. Glad to be with you. Greg, we just spoke with uh, Science News Editor Janet Roloff about how this new technology works and, and why it's important. And I'd like to ask you about some of the business and financial issues here. More than a billion people in the world survive on, on less than a dollar a day. So 10 cents may not seem like a lot to us here in the West, but it's it's a good piece of someone's income in these these communities. How is Procter & Gamble working to ensure that the people who desperately need this water treatment will be able to get access to it? Well, we're doing a couple of things. One of the things we're doing in order to reach the people who need the product the most is providing the product at no profit uh, for providing emergency water. We're providing pure water purifier, for example, to the International Rescue Committee, and they're taking it into Iraq. We're also looking at working with uh, groups such as Johns Hopkins University to go into other countries and are seeking U.S. government funding in order to do that. How much of a trailblazer do you think your company is in terms of, of getting the finances to work on this? This has been a, a conundrum for the world. We have good technologies, and yet the poorest people don't have access to them. A lot of our uh, large companies, U.S.-based and Europe-based, are trying to learn how to develop products uh, which can sustainably serve people at lower incomes. We call it the bottom of the pyramid because actually um, they're the foundation. More than 4 billion people in the world are generally not consumers of uh, the large companies in the U.S. and Europe. What we believe is that if we can develop products which are affordable and meet a real need of these uh, people in the developing world, is that we can develop sustainable businesses, which will be important for our growth, but more importantly, will be able to help them get out of the poverty cycle. Greg Allgood is Associate Director of Procter & Gamble's Health Sciences Institute. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Fresh tomatoes, grapes, lettuce, and other produce have dominated the economy and politics of California's vast Central Valley for years. But now, due in large part to pollution from agricultural practices, residents there are coping with some of the dirtiest air in the nation. As Living on Earth reported last year, children in the Central Valley are being diagnosed with asthma at nearly three times the national rate. Tamara Keith of member station KQED reports the prevalence of respiratory illness is starting to change politics in this part of California. 40-year-old State Senator Dean Flores doesn't fit the profile of an environmental crusader. 
He's a conservative Democrat representing a district where agriculture is king. In his first four years in California's state house, Flores consistently voted against environmental legislation. Lately, though, he's been hearing from voters about the region's polluted air. Whether it's our school district officials that tell us that our children are missing more days today than they were 10 years ago because of asthma and other respiratory illnesses, whether it's the kids themselves that tell us it's hard, you know, breathing in this type of air is like sucking through a very narrow straw, you know, all of the stories that I hear in this air battle come from real people. Health officials estimate 300,000 children here suffer from asthma. Flores's two kids don't have the disease, but he's seen the effect it's had on one of his son's friends, a boy named Michael Tuck. He stayed at our house. We've seen what it's like for him to have an asthma attack at 2 in the morning and have his mom come to our house to pick him up because we can't take care of it. And, you know, those memories are in my head every single time I do a hearing, and I think about his breathing and his ability to live in the valley and not having to move away. He's, uh, you know, a real living example of the things, the reason we're doing this. What Flores is doing is taking on the region's powerful farming interests with a package of legislation more aggressive than anyone would have predicted. Flores's 10 bills would end an exemption from air quality rules enjoyed by agriculture for decades. As he explains that farming contributes 25% of the valley's air pollution, he sits in a country-style family restaurant in his hometown of Shafter, near a display of plastic potatoes and onions. Flores admits he is now waging a battle that he and other California lawmakers have spent years avoiding. There's the saying, uh, do nothing uh, and, and say nothing, uh, and therefore get nothing done. Uh, that's been our model thus far. We have allowed the industries here to really dictate admit to many of the politicians exactly what they should be doing. Flores' sudden vigor for improving air quality surprised many in the state capitol. Last year when he was in the assembly, environmentalists criticized Flores for missing a key vote on a bill that made California the first state to restrict greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. Bill McGavern is a lobbyist for the Sierra Club. In December, we sat in this office and talked about who was going to be our champion for Central Valley air quality, and wasn't it a shame that none of the elected officials from that region were willing to take the lead? And not long after that, Dean Flores emerged as someone who was willing to take the lead and was willing to do that even when it alienates the powerful agricultural interests in his district. Fresno air quality activist Kevin Hall says he used to be disgusted with Flores's positions on environmental issues. Now he can't help but compliment the senator. It's hard to describe or to understand this kind of turnaround other than to say, I know he's a very intelligent, well-educated person. I think he's, he gets it. I think he understands it. Flores's turnaround marks a shift here in the Central Valley. The region seems to be coming to terms with the fact that despite its rural lifestyle, it now faces environmental problems worse than most major cities. In a recent poll, Valley residents listed air pollution as their top concern. And with one in five kids carrying asthma inhalers to school every day, Kevin Hall says it's no wonder people are demanding change. Everybody knows somebody who suffers. If, if it's not you or a relative of yours, it's, it's an immediate friend. And, and as people get more and more in touch with this as being the commonplace, um, the anger grows. The scope of Flores' legislation also caught farmers and their representatives off guard. The bills would not only make farms obey clean air rules, they would force farmers to change the way they do business and cost millions of dollars.
One bill would ban the practice of burning agricultural clippings and other waste in the fields. Another would force dairies to go through a strict approval process before being built. Even the State Farm Bureau was oblique in its criticism of Flores. California Farm Bureau Environmental Affairs Director Cynthia Corey. I'm just afraid with this many different issues on the table at once, it it makes it more complex, and I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm worried that it might not be as thoughtful as solutions. Behind the scenes, the industry is lobbying hard against the Flores bills, and other farming groups haven't been so careful with their words. Off mic, one prominent Valley Ag leader angrily called Flores's legislation an ambush motivated by political ambition. Flores, a Harvard MBA, has said he may want to run for state treasurer and someday possibly even governor. Barbara O'Connor is a political scientist at Cal State Sacramento. The Machiavellian observers argue that he's picked the issue because it's a, a salient issue. People really care about it. It polls well. Um, I would like to give him a little more credit than that. So far, Flores's package of air quality bills has done well in the state legislature, but they still have a long way to go before landing on Governor Gray Davis's desk. And even if they are signed into law, these bills are only the beginning of what will likely be a long process. The American Lung Association ranks the Valley cities of Fresno, Bakersfield, and Visalia as the second, third, and fourth smoggiest in the country. For Living on Earth, I'm Tamara Keith in California's Central Valley. Hindsight, they say, is 2020, and for critical issues such as air quality, commentator Miriam Landman hopes hindsight and foresight will win out over our typically short-sighted perspective. She brings us this wake-up call from the future. It's a typical morning in the year 2020. As I get ready for work, I climb into my full-body bubble suit. I zip it up and glance in the mirror to make sure my oxygen tank is on straight. Sound absurd? Well, we already buy bottled water, and we pay more for it than for gasoline. And on smoggy days, we reach for our inhalers. And now, some of us even duck into an oxygen spa for a 20-minute hit of pure, unadulterated air. The first time I heard of an oxygen spa, I was skimming through a magazine. There was an ad featuring a model with clear plastic tubes inserted into her nostrils. The ad was for the O2 Spa Bar, a stylish Toronto salon offering oxygen sessions for $16 a pop. The ad stated, It may sound weird at first, but think about how much smog and car exhaust you breathe into your lungs every day. Well, that certainly is something to think about. Unfortunately, instead of actually solving that problem, oxygen bars have sprung up all over the world, first in smoggy Asian cities like Tokyo, where there are also coin-operated oxygen booths on the streets, and later in Europe and North America. So when an air bar opened up in my fair city of San Francisco, I just had to go check it out. It was a long, dimly lit room that felt like a cocktail lounge. Twenty-something hipsters were lounging around on pleather couches while a DJ spun ambient techno music. I sidled up to the bar and perused the menu of aromatherapy oxygen blends with names like Euphoric, Release, and Relax. I ordered a dose of Release from the bartender, and I asked him if I was about to get high. I wouldn't put it that way, he said. It just makes you feel better, and it lasts longer than the feeling you'd get from drinking a beer. Soon, I was hooked up to a tank of the herbal oxygen concoction. There was a tube in my nose. I can't say I felt as glamorous as I would had I been holding a martini, and I can't say it actually did anything for me, other than inject the scent of lavender into my nasal passage. But that's not surprising, since there's no sound evidence that oxygen spa treatments are at all effective in cleaning pollutants out of our lungs. The original website for Woody Harrelson's Los Angeles Oxygen Bar declared, 
Up your nose with a rubber hose and join the rest of society who laughed at the idea of bottled water. It is hard to take oxygen bars seriously, but the implications are serious, as serious as a heart attack. Medical studies have found that breathing dirty air can actually trigger fatal heart attacks in people with cardiac problems. And roughly 17 million people in the U.S. alone suffer from asthma. That's three times as many as there were 20 years ago. Recently, I read a magazine blurb about a high-fashion jacket that came equipped with a smog-filtering mask attached to its hood. Jackets with breathing masks and oxygen-hawking establishments, to my mind, belong in a bleak, futuristic sci-fi world. But while we were sleeping, the future arrived. The surreal is now the real. So I can't help but wonder, what's next? Miriam Landman is a freelance writer and a green building consultant with Simon & Associates in San Francisco. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week... Take that, you dirty rat. Actually, that's not a rat. It's a nutria, a beaver-like critter from South America that was brought to the U.S. to spur a fur trade, but has wound up eating away wetlands and evading scientists' best efforts to get rid of the invasive pest. We have a pretty good sense for how to to go out and trap nutria. We don't have a very good sense at all about how to control a population. Outfoxing the nutria next time on Living on Earth. And remember that between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in Japan's ancient capital, Kyoto. Sarah Peebles recorded the subtle ambience of an outdoor temple there. She calls it revolving life. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our staff includes Andy Farnsworth, Elizabeth Klein, Tom Simon, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Nathan Marcy, and Liz Lampert. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our interns are Carolyn Johnson, Julia Keller, Taylor Ferguson, and Mary Beth Conway. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Ear. Our technical director is Al Avery. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Diane Toomey is our science editor. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 
10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation, and Toms of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com. This is NPR, National Public Radio.